in the school that I went to in Jersey City, we had separate classes for boys and girls. And we had separate entrances for boys and girls. There was a, a distinct effort to try and separate the sexes very early on. When you're trying to justify it to yourself that young, it's easy. Oh, we're separate. We're different people putting us together than we're joined by the devil. You know, all these like religious rulings that helped, that they basically laid down the law for us kids. And then I'm removed from that environment and I'll put into a mixed gender class where I'm discovering that women are just like men and it's not a really, it's not very different. I normally introduce my guests, um, but why don't you introduce yourself this time? Can you tell everyone sure. who you are? Yeah, my name is Ayman Ismail. I am a first-generation Egyptian-American. That means my parents came from Egypt. <laughs> but at this point, they spent more time living in America than they have in Egypt, so I don't know what that makes them. Anyways, I'm a staff writer at Slate Magazine, where I produced a video series called Who's Afraid of Ayman Ismail, which was a lot of fun to make. Uh, now I'm trying something different. Now I'm moved into the podcast sphere and I'm producing a series called Man Up where I try and investigate where we get our ideas about what it means to be a man in America. Mm -hmm. So it's um, a lot of introspection, a lot of second guessing what you think is real and trying to find surprising takes for what we think we already know. Okay, so we'll start with your childhood. Yes. We'll, we'll start there. And your parents, as you said, they come from Egypt. And as I was prepping for this interview, I read that you said your parents come from different parts of Egypt. So yeah. culturally, they are different. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? And how did it impact you growing up? So when you look at a map of the world, the United States is like half of the globe and Europe is gigantic and they make Africa tiny. And, you know, there's all these different pers forced perspectives that you need to get over. So Egypt is massive. Egypt is a really, really big country. You know, just to get to two countries that look next door on a map, it takes you like four or five hours. So to drive from where my dad grew up to where my mom grew up, it's about a 10-hour drive. So the cultures are different. They speak different kinds of Arabic. One says falafel, the other one says ta'meya. You know, uh, so when if they had stayed in Egypt, they would have never have met. What's different about America is in a lot of other countries, we have classes, societies that keep people from different classes separate. Right. If you're educated, if you come up from a, a very high class society, chances are very slim that you're going to be interacting with a lot of people that come from like the farmer areas or a little bit more south down the Nile. So what's interesting about their relationship, and I think played to my advantage as a first gen, uh, is the fact that they both come from different experiences, uh, both have different specialties, right? And they both add different flavors of Egyptian culture to my experience. And that's something that I appreciate about them. So what do you mean by different specialties? It's different specialties. Right. Good question. So my mother comes from um, like a, a pretty affluent Egyptian <laughs> Uh, family. Her, she has maybe 12 brothers and sisters and half of them are doctors and the other <laughs> half are engineers. Uh, so my father comes from a village called Suheg, which I think at this point is kind of developed into a bigger city. For all intensive purposes, it's a village, you know, uh, no plumbing, no paved streets. I think they, ha I hear they have some of that now, but not when he was growing up there in the early 70s. And so his specialty is more hands-on. He, he's more of a, a barterer, a people person. He knows how to adapt and to read people, uh, whereas my mom is more of the, the encourager, the someone who helps me set goals into the future and, and helps me become more ambitious, you know? Hmm. So it's, it's different things that they both learned from their different uh, experiences growing up that ended up giving me a very round and f complete Egyptian heritage to inherit from them. And you grew up in New Jersey, right? Which is a, its own version of Little Egypt. Yeah, that's what I was <laughs> going to ask you. So what was it like growing up in New Jersey, and how did like outside influences impact your outlook on life growing up? So the thing about Jersey City specifically 
is that a lot of Egyptian immigrants end up there because there's a very strong Egyptian, specifically Muslim community. That's interesting. And when my parents were wanting to raise children, they had decided very early on before the first one was even born that they were going to be the best Muslims that they could be. (laughs) And this was something very important to them. So like a lot of other Egyptian parents, they came to Jersey City where they can raise their kids with other Egyptian kids um, sort of outside of the conventional American experience, even the conventional Jersey City con- uh, experience. We, we, we were born into a very tight-knit community that more or less existed as a bubble, but having left that bubble and experienced the world, I do appreciate what they were trying to protect us from. Jersey City in the 90s was a very tough neighborhood to grow up in, Uh, We were right next door to a high school that barely sent kids to college. But for us as kids who were also growing up in similar economic situations, they gave us the best shot that we could possibly get by putting us in an environment where we were experiencing other Egyptians or we were experiencing other Muslims, where nobody was bullying us for where we came from or who we were. You know, it's the regular kind of bullying. It's like, oh, your face is funny, whatever, you know. But it ended up helping me develop a very sophisticated idea of what a Muslim could be. Not very early on, but eventually, because I was exposed to so many different Muslims. You know, I was one of three Amens in my class. So the reason why I, I cherish that and, 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 and I'm thankful to my parents for putting me in that kind of circumstance is that after a certain point, specifically after 9-11, I was transferred out. And I was put into public school where I was the only Amen. And every question I got was, do you, do you live in a pyramid? What is it, what is it like being in the desert? Or um, your sister, she wears a hijab. What is she hiding under there? You know, uh, her favorite answer was usually, oh, there's an air conditioner because, you know, it gets hot. Um, so uh, holding those two experiences together, mm. I understand where my parents were thinking I understand where they were coming from when they wanted to protect us from some of the more dangerous outside influences, gangs, drugs, Mm -hmm. violence. In our little bubble, they were able to convince us that we were different and therefore we were we were special. And if we were special, we we were had more potential. And I don't think that that would have been as possible had we just grown grown up as any other kids in the neighborhood. So I appreciate them 100%, and not a day goes by where I don't wish that I could give to them what they've given to me. Where did you go to college? I went to school at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. Um, you talk about how you went through this identity crisis, mm-hmm. um, and in college you were able to reconnect with your Muslim identity. What was that journey like? Because what you're describing to me seems like your parents instilled this strong sense of identity in you as you were growing up. But then did you lose touch somewhere along the way, and then you reconnected in college? Yeah. I mean, when we talk about religion specifically, it's a very lofty and ginormous concept to wrap your mind around, right? How do you expect students and young kids to really understand their place in the universe when we're talking about God, right? It's this humongous concept. So when we were kids, or I'll say when I was a kid, religion more or less boiled down to do's and don'ts. Muslims, they do a particular activity. They are supposed to pray. They fast Ramadan. They don't eat pork. That was like the biggest thing. But they don't do X, Y, Z. They don't have boyfriend and girlfriends. (laughs) They don't disrespect their parents. That all this stuff that exists around you, because you're Muslim, you don't do it. And your whole identity is banked on whether or not you're able to follow those rules. So... As you can imagine, like teenagers, we all kind of rebelled and we were exploring different ways of being. I was not an exception. I 100% wanted to just find alternatives for just living my life because I was so curious, right? Were there any specific things that you were rebelling against within this paradigm of who you are as a Muslim? Like, were there any specific things? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we had been taught 
in that bubble of a school didn't resonate with me as soon as I left it because I saw how other people were living. And as a 14, 13 year old, I'm thinking that's way better. For example, uh, in the school that I went to in Jersey City, we had separate classes for boys and girls. And we had separate entrances for boys and girls. There was a, a distinct effort to try and separate the sexes very early on. When you're trying to justify it to yourself that young, it's easy. Oh, we're separate. We're different people putting us together than we're joined by the devil. You know, all these like religious rulings that helped, that they basically laid down the law for us kids. And then I'm removed from that environment and I'll put into a mixed gender class where I'm discovering that women are just like men and it's not a really, it's not very different. And in fact, if you act like it's different, then you're the outcast. And so then you had to reconcile both of those two truths. How do you, how could both of those two be true at the same time? And that was the first thing that I rebelled against. You know, I was this kid who was flanked by girls who were funny, who were smart, who were better at me than math, who I could, you know, see a lot of myself in. Mm. And I had to learn quick, you know, how to, how to interact with this total, this, these people that I thought were a totally different species. And that caught up with me quick. Like that only took about six months to unlearn. And then all of a sudden I'm playing basketball against like, whoever and we're, we're, we're just doing everything together we're having lunches together we're, we're having like dirty talk together it's like everything it doesn't matter and when those two realities clashed not that I had to make a decision on to which way I was going to go I still felt like what I was doing was bad and made me a bad Muslim but at that point I just didn't care like I, I just wanted to experience my life the way that I wanted to experience it and along with that came Again, not a rejection, but more of a, you know, I was more willing to sidestep some of the rules that I thought had been concrete. So when you say you would, you felt like you were acting like a bad Muslim, mm-hmm. do you think, do you wish your parents had taught you more nuanced um, version of what Muslim, what it is like to be a Muslim rather than mm-hmm. just black and white? Because the reason I say that is I grew up in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And growing up, I mean, there was some degree of segregation, but it wasn't as explicit or it wasn't um, part of the religion per se. It wasn't sh- described as being part of our religion. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I'm trying to understand, that what you're describing is it, it was taught as part of Islam. Yeah. I don't see their, their vision of Islam as being incorrect. I, I think... Coming from their experiences as immigrants to a country uh, where they were already saw themselves maybe as having um, less fortune than their neighbors, you know, and coming into this environment where it was dangerous, you know, it's Jersey City and during the crack epidemic and the Islamic school was across the street from the projects and there were brawls like we were we would fight the other neighborhood kids just because we wanted to go get fries from the neighborhood chicken shack so if i were to consider what they were up against and what they were trying to accomplish i would i would see a lot of reason as to why they chose to raise us that way i think they were just afraid of losing their kids and having their kids grow up outside of their comfort zone my parents comfort zone and then see them become kids that they didn't recognize so I think they wanted to do the best that they could to instill in me the beliefs that they held. And one of the ways that they did that was through religion. And I think, you know, it's impossible to teach one person only one version of their faith. I'd have to assume that they knew that I would eventually be exposed to different ways of being Muslim and different ideals and and they also taught me to read the Quran for myself. So I was reading and and already coming up with different ideas about like how things should be interpreted, for myself at least. And through that, I don't know, I, I have a hard time saying, well, they should have done this or should have done that. I just think they did the best that they could. And the immigrant experience is something that I can't understand. Like, you can tell me more, but I was born here to parents who were very afraid of the environment around them. So I, 
yeah, it's it's hard for me to say that they should have done anything that they didn't do. I think they did their best. Yeah. And I think as an as an immigrant uh, mother, I can relate to most of what your parents did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I may be a different generation, so I guess my parenting style has evolved or it's different. But there are so many similar fears that your parents must have had. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to my girls, I, I have these these ideals of what they should pursue and what they shouldn't pursue. And maybe I should focus more on what they should rather than what they shouldn't. But that that comes again mm-hmm. as, a, as an immigrant parent. You, you're more like vigilant of what your kids are doing. Yeah. Um, that's that's the, the idea. So I want to talk about your work. Um, sure. you, you're doing amazing work. You're Thank an you. author and you're a podcaster and you did this video series where you tackle these extremely complex issues in a very simple and relatable fashion. I appreciate that. Yeah, because I, I, I was watching your videos and I was like, oh my God, this is so interesting to watch and it really resonated with me. But I want wow. to talk about one particular video where you talk to your wife mm-hmm. about this idea of having Christmas tree in your house. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, going back to my parents wanting to protect their kids, right? Christmas was one of those boogeymen. It was unavoidable, right? It's and it's on the radio, Christmas music, in media, in movies. They t- they wouldn't take us to the movies during Christmas time, because they didn't want their kids being taunted by this stranger to them giving out presents out of a sack after he breaks into your house. Like that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty frightening. But they come from Egypt. They know what Christmas is, right? They 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 had Christian friends, and Christmas is also a pretty big thing in Egypt too. So. I have to assume that they knew that it wasn't so dangerous. But what they were up against was a very influential culture. So I, I, I can understand that they wanted to do their best to keep their children Muslim. I came to it eventually through like that transformation that we were talking about earlier. That was before I kept on being interrogated right when it came to this issue of christmas people would this was like right at the heat of the happy holidays debate mm-hmm. where it felt like if you didn't say merry christmas specifically you were w- waging war on christianity or something like that so it almost felt like christmas was a battleground issue mm-hmm. today in a way that it wasn't when we were kids i mean and also my parents did respond to outsiders demanding that they integrate in their own way, right? They they wove, uh, they waved American flags. They both learned English, right? They did integrate in their own ways, but they didn't want to make their kids, you know, go down a path where they would lose their religion and lose their identity. And that was their main priority and their main prerogative. So I, I, I understand why they don't want us to have Christmas trees and give out Christmas presents because in this country, we know when Christmas is going to happen off the top of our head. But for something like Eid or when the first day of Ramadan or Laylatul Qadr or all of these like significant dates in Islam, a lot of us are scratching our heads saying, hmm, let me check my phone. One month, oh, last year was like, it was like snowing, right? Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> it's so it's, I understand that had we had been growing up in, had we had been growing up in Egypt, it makes total sense that Christmas would be like no big deal. But because we were growing up in a very religious Christian country, it felt important for them to, to separate those two, to separate their kids from, the, from, from wanting to celebrate Christmas. But my wife and I are adults, right? We were both almost 30. We celebrate Christmas whether we want to or not because if we're just in the office and people are giving out like secret Santas or whatever we're not going to say oh no sorry uh this would really disappoint my parents I'm not going to celebrate with you guys <laughs> we, of course we're going to buy presents for people and like help them celebrate their holiday and if they want to they can fast with us and help us celebrate our holidays so I think that exchange of ideas is wonderful and really really productive but if you're you're dealing with like six year olds and seven year olds who want Game Boys or watching advertising advertisements for Tickle Me Elmos and they want that and they say, Mom, it's Christmas. My reaction, if they my kid was saying that to me, I was like, Yo, we don't do Christmas. I'll get you that for Eid. But like, no, like 
this is their holiday, this is ours. And the way that my parents did that was they told us that Christmas just wasn't for us and that we had our own holidays. So don't celebrate their holidays because we have our holidays coming up that we should be looking forward to. So when I was producing that video series, I was considering how Christmas became a battleground issue for not just me, but other Muslim Americans. Uh, a lot of my friend group were, they didn't really know whether or not to celebrate because they thought it would be fun and what's the harm in a tree in presence, right? But at the same time, you have to consider that it could be harmful because, especially if you're like younger, because then you might want to, you might compare how your neighbors are reacting to that religion versus how they are to your own and you might see yours as weaker and how that can lead to like a complex or whatever. So my wife and I decided, okay, you know what, let's just try it. Let's just see how it fits. So we went and we bought a tree for the very first time. Neither of us had ever had a tree before. And when we were in the Christmas tree lot, I was nervous. Uh, not because I thought that I was violating my religion, but because I thought that if my parents were to see me do it, they wouldn't quite understand. They still see me as their kid that they need to protect. So I understand that they, if they were to see us with a tree and decorating it with lights and giving each other gifts, they would think, oh, no, we failed. And I don't want them to feel like they failed. I want them to feel like they succeeded. On this issue, I understand your parents' perspective, and I sort of agree with them. To me, integration can be even by celebrating differences and having those differences, mm -hmm. because sometimes what we do is that we try to diminish intrinsic value of differences. Mm -hmm. So I can celebrate a friend's a holiday by being part of it, but I don't have to celebrate it in my house. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so for me, I like I, I've celebrated holy with friends. I have wished them Merry Christmas, like Christian friends, mm -hmm. um, Jewish friends, Hanukkah. But then as your parents, as you talk about your parents, I think I want my kids to know that our holiday is Eid. Yeah. And that is what is most valuable to me. Yeah, and I think that's totally valid, and I think that makes perfect sense. And when I consider what my parents were trying to do, that's the obvious answer, right? The only thing is that my wife and I have never experienced yeah. life outside of America. This is just our whole experience. And we kept on asking ourselves, like, would this take away from our celebration? Would having a Christmas tree make our Aids less special? Right. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. Absolutely. No. They won't. Yeah, yeah. So, so when we were considering it that, like, in a religious way, it almost felt like we weren't losing anything spiritually or Islamically by having a tree in our house. But at the same time, I totally understand why my parents would think that it would. But I think it really just boils down to intention, right? Our naya. So for us, our our intention was to experiments and 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 see how it felt and see and, and try and figure out why we felt the way that we felt and maybe learn something about our parents experiences and our experiences along the way and i think we succeeded in that and we also uh during the episode invited a lot of our muslim yeah. friends to come over and we didn't tell them what was happening we just sort of brought them into like this muslim christmas fusion thing right <laughs> we had a tree but it had a green crescent on the top and we, when we ate, we also prayed. Like, you know, like we, we were doing it like the Muslim way, if there was a Muslim way to do it, which I thought was was fun, you know. But I definitely wasn't hoping that people would watch the episode and, and think to themselves, okay, well, Eamon's just trying to make himself more appealing to yeah. non-Muslims or, or see me as someone who was willing to compromise my religion. This was really just a social experiment so that I can learn something about myself and my relationship to Islam. So what did you learn? I learned a lot, actually. I learned that these, you know, these barriers that kept me from exploring the American culture because I thought they were these religious lines that shouldn't have been crossed were actually useful tools to strengthen my religion. Like here we were celebrating, you know, by just having a lot of Muslims over and feeding them. Like, what's more Islamic mm -hmm. than that? And we also got to pray Jama'ah, you know, which you get more credit for. And we also started a conversation, like, my favorite hadith, I mean, I don't know who narrated it, but the Prophet, came into the mosque and he saw two groups of people. One, peop one group was 
um, studying and memorizing the Quran. They were just reciting and reciting and reciting. And another group was listening to a man talk about his like travels around the world and talk about going to China. And the Prophet went and sat with that person. And then when someone asked the Prophet, why would you sit with them instead of going with prayers? He said, uh, studying is more important than ritual prayers. Absolutely. And so that resonates with me deeply because I am a journalist. I, I, I'm satisfied when I'm out there learning and exploring and not traveling to distant lands, but I'm traveling to distant cultures, even though there are neighbors, you know? So I think there's value in going and experiencing the way that other people are experiencing their lives. And through that experience, it honestly helps me understand my own. So talking about traveling to different cultures, in your video series that we are talking about, it is basically it investigates stereotypes and mm -hmm. it's trying to, in, in some ways, um, reclaim narratives and, and challenge those stereotypes, right? Mm -hmm. So you've you've made a lot of videos and, and you speak, you, you talk about how you're trying to address people who speak up against Muslims and you think this is born out of fear. Yeah. What do you mean by fear? Fear, yeah. It's totally born out of fear. It's um, So every generation has their boogeyman, their political boogeyman. At one point it was the Jews, then it was like the Catholics and, you know, the Irish, black people, Latino people. Today it's the Muslim people, right? It's just our turn. It, it's... America never existed without Muslims, but being Muslim became a very politicized identity within our lifetimes. And, you know, it's in a lot of ways not for no reason. Like 9-11 did happen. There were also like a series of other bombings and, and, you know, tragedies that occurred in the United States that sobered people up to, oh, sh shoot, there's people called Muslims and they're living next to us. How do we know they're not on the wrong team? And just that doubt, right, that, that question was taken advantage of by, and I'll say Republican politicians. Mm. It was a very convenient tool for them to, one, establish uh, or, or to invent, right, a problem, and then posture themselves as the only ones with the solution. It's a very convenient political tool. And that's the background for a lot of the Muslim experience here in America. Not all. A lot of people are able to live their lives without, outside of it. I'm jealous. But it's, uh, it's a very huge part of our identity. So when I f started to, you know, sketch down some ideas about what I wanted to talk about during this video series, the only guidance I had was make it personal. So I was like, I can do anything. This is cool. I was trying to make the decision. Did I, did I want to introduce politics or did I want to specifically make it about a Muslim kid trying to find his place as a Muslim in America? And I, and I considered keeping politics out. But that didn't seem to make sense to me because every time we talk about Islam in media, it's in a political lens. It's through yeah. a political lens. So in order to understand how Muslims see themselves we also need to consider how people see Muslims because that has an impact on how Muslims see themselves. Those two are correlated. And, you know, so the very, I call it like the test episode before the series was born, I was just working as a photographer, videographer at Slate Magazine. And one of my assignments was to provide visual backup for the other journalists who were going to the Republican National Convention in Cleveland to report on Donald Trump's nomination as the Republican nominee for the presidential election in 2017 or 16. And he had already introduced the idea of like banning Muslims at this point. He had already suggested surveillancing mosques and keeping a registry of Muslims. All of these ideas that seem to have riled his base, right? Because he's created this issue. Okay, well, there's Muslims among us and we don't know who the good ones and bad ones are. Mm. And then he said, well, I'm going to fix it. So he did both of those things. He first turned Muslims into the boogeyman, then told his his uh, his supporters that he can solve those problems. He presented a solution, yeah. Right. So we basically just went there and to, to, to basically do photo and video for other journalists as they do their stories, right? One person wanted to do a story about merch. Another person wanted to do a story about, like, specifically anti-Hillary Clinton rhetoric, like, whatever they wanted to do. 
But before we had even gotten in, before, while we were still waiting to enter, the first day, there was like this big security line where we get our credentials. Someone taps me on the back of my shoulder. I turn around. It's this person playing cosplay, full-blown cosplay as Thomas Jefferson with the colonial hat and the fake medals and the, the Quaker pants and everything. <laughs> and the first thing he says to me is, hey, are you a Muslim? I'm like, okay, yeah, 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 I am a Muslim. What's up? And the, I'm from Newark, New Jersey, Jersey City, so I have like a, I'm a little coarse. You know, sometimes I'm like, I get in his face, I'm like, yeah, I'm Muslim. What's up? Right? What are you going to do? <laughs> and he says, well, I heard that your, your prophet is a pedophile and that he married a girl when she was six years old and had sex with her. And I heard that you beat your wife because Muslims are told in the Quran to beat their wives. And he just goes on and on and on and on. Which is not a new experience for Muslims in America. This is kind of like, yeah. it comes with the, the territory. So I calmly explained to him, no, Muslims don't actually think that. No, that's not what that verse says to me. Actually, we believe in this. By the way, you're dressed as Thomas Jefferson, right? Do you want to talk about Thomas Jefferson's legacy? Okay, well, in, in Virginia, at the Monticello, where he was storing his slaves, he was also raping them periodically and had... A whole generation, like who, I think maybe a hundred bastard children that he abandoned, right? And you're dressed as him. And he says, no, that never happened. And then, <laughs> you know, of course, this is a line for the journalists. So they're all laughing at him. And then now it's like, that's kind of how it ended. But one of my coworkers got a little bit of this on camera. He filmed it on his iPhone and sent it back to the New York office. And then someone said, hey, that's what Eamon should do. He should just walk around with the camera and introduce himself as a Muslim and see what happens. But they were very nice about it. They're like, only if he's comfortable with it. I'm like, yeah, it's fine. Let's do it. And that turned into the, it turned into the proof of concept for the whole video series, Who's Afraid of Amen? Where I was like, okay, well, there's one, an appetite for this kind of content where people are curious about what the truth is when it comes to their Muslim neighbors. But at the same time, they're, they might be interested in a Muslim asking questions and answering those specific questions head on. So that's what I was trying to do. That was the inspiration for the whole series. So with your series, like, I do recognize that there is some element of fear among non-Muslims with regards to Muslims, right? And you've talked about that, like 9-11 and then what they see on media and especially Fox News. I mean, if I were to watch Fox News all day long, yeah. I would hate myself. Yeah. Yeah. So, but uh, do you think when we say they are they are scared of us or using the word fear, mm -hmm. we are taking responsibility away from them? Because hmm. to me, it's like it's an emotion. Yeah. And when we talk about somebody being emotional, then we give them the license to do whatever they can because they're scared, right? It's an emotion. So they want to protect themselves yeah. and it's okay to do whatever in order to protect themselves. So what do you think? Like, are we taking responsibility away from them by calling it fear? I recognize how some people could believe that. I just don't personally think mm -hmm. that that's right. I mean, you end up talking to these people in person, right? When they're not hiding behind anonymous Twitter users or mm -hmm. Facebook users or whatever. And they immediately take a sympathetic tone. They recognize your humanity if you present yourself as a human. And so I have a very hard time saying or, or believing in my heart that these people, had they not been taken advantage of, would already have this hate in their heart. Mm. I, yeah, and I also don't know if the, the way, there's just not enough Muslims in this country to present what Islam is like for us or around the world. It almost feels impossible. So... Most Americans have never met a Muslim. Is it their job to go out and seek a Muslim friend? Then? Why not? I don't know. Isn't that a little patronizing? Like No, because I feel like they outnumber us. Mm -hmm. And it would make sense because if they don't take part of responsibility of seeking what the truth is, then there's a lot of onus on us. Mm -hmm. 
to present counter narratives. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm saying that they should take responsibility as well. Yeah. Have you have you Googled Islam? Like, it's, I have. <laughs> it's very hard to find the truth on your own outside of like walking into a mosque and then just asking mm. questions, which some of these people have been led to believe are like terrorist centers. Mm. So I don't know. I, I don't almost disencourage people from trying to go online and discover the truth because most of the results when you Google it are going to be what that guy was saying to me. He learned that stuff online. But I am not talking about that. I am talking about like, in person, what what you're doing, mm-hmm. right? So if they have a Muslim neighbor or if they if they have a Muslim colleague, um, that's what I'm talking about. You're absolutely right about Google. I would never <laughs> want to Google Muslim or Islam yeah, yeah. or it's it's scary. It it really is. But I don't want my kids to Google it. Either. I'm just saying the truth is harder to find than it should be. In theory, yes. I I I totally think that it's up to everyone to educate themselves. We're not just, like, fighting for their attention, right? We're, we're fighting for their attention versus the other side who is also mm-hmm. fighting for their attention. And there is a very well-funded yeah. Islamophobia machine that is spending millions of dollars to convince these people that we are coming to kill them and that if our neighbor is next door, that means they're trying to invade and impose like dress codes on your your children, right? Like that's what they've been warned against. So and that's that itself is is scary. And I don't think that the problem is that if only they were to go and seek the truth, then Islamophobia would disappear. Mm-hmm. We need to dismantle the systemic Islamophobia that is injecting it into their hearts. To me, they're just useful for votes. Right. I don't see them as people who are actively restricting our freedom either, even if they just yell, go back to your country. No, you go back to your country. Who cares? Right. But if it's systemic. Right. And now those people are voting for the person who wants to put surveillance cameras in mosques. Right. Or just entrap young kids and put them in jail preemptively because who knows what he'll grow up into. Mm. Right. For example, which happens then if we're not working to dismantle those systems, then really what are we working on? So what kind of impact have you seen so far with your video series? Well, I've gotten a lot of responses, right? Hmm. A a very diverse array of responses. A lot of it, people are supportive, though, to be honest, Muslims and non-Muslims. And the people who hate it are also Muslims and non-Muslims. It's kind of interesting in the way that 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 works, Hmm. right? People have a certain expectation of what Islam is supposed to look like in their hearts. Everyone. Mm. And when they don't see that exactly, they're going to assume that the person who's producing it is purposefully trying to deceive people. I had a lot of pushback for the first episode about homophobia, Mm. right? Where I talked to someone who was gay, who was violently tossed from their home after they came out and was afraid for their life. That's a real thing that happened. I wasn't, I didn't pay an actor to like, I didn't write the story for them. This is a thing that happened in our community. And whether or not we are okay with that lifestyle, there is so much in the Quran and in the Hadith about justice and what justice is supposed to look like Mm -hmm. and what family is supposed to look like and how Muslims should treat other Muslims. And a lot of that gets trampled on in order to vilify an outside group, right? Specifically the gay community, including the gay Muslims in our community. So I think all of this is wrapped into one. I'm going to get to the point. The response that I've gotten was both the Islam that you're, you're preaching is incorrect and also the, the way you represented my experience was amazing. But I also got from the other side, wow, I never knew that Muslims like you existed. I just assumed they all wore turbans and burqas and were chanting death to America. That's a pretty similar to a message that I actually got. And some people saying, hey, I live in Idaho. I've never met a Muslim before. 
if you have the chance, please come. I'd like to have you over for dinner and introduce you to some of my my neighbors who like have some bad ideas about what Muslims are. So amazing responses like that, but also responses that are saying, oh, well, you're a liar. Or I read it on uh, Islamophobia.com, whatever, like XYZ. I'm not going to give them the, the, the shout out. I read on this website that you're allowed to lie. And so I know you're lying. And even if you tell me that you're not lying, I still think that you're lying because this guy told me that you can. Right. I, I was going to ask you about that specific thing, and I'm glad you brought it up. This notion of Muslims can lie. This is like, is it prevalent in, in the society from what you've like seen through your series? Or is it like you think this is just one off where people few would say, but because I feel like, and again, this anti-Muslim, anti-Islam mm-hmm. um, groups, and um, they, they perpetuate this idea. So how how do you debunk that? Like yeah, it's uh it's hard. I mean, we're talking about Takeya, right? Yeah. Takeya is a very very obscure, buried. It's not even like a principle. Yeah, it's more so like precedence. It's more like precedence than it is like instruction. And what it is, it, it it's rooted in this one hadith. I only know this because I did the research because at first when I heard it, I was like, what is this thing? Uh, But it's rooted in this hadith where someone came to the prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, and and said, I'm so sorry. I was captured by the enemy and they they forced me to relinquish my my Muslimhood. They they forced me to say I am no longer a Muslim and I, I condemned the prophet. He was like, oh, prophet, please forgive me. How do I make up for this and not go to hell and suffer the consequences for saying that? And the prophet said, no, like, what did you believe in your heart? If you still believed in your heart that you're a Muslim and that you believed in it and that you were just telling them what they wanted to hear so that they don't murder you, Mm. then you won't be judged for it. Now, that's the precedence. Now, Takiyah has been written about since then. It was introduced after the prophet's death as like, okay, well, we have all of these people who are dying because they're saying they're Muslim in these persecuted, persecuted places. We need to find a way to make to help them live. Yeah. Okay, so they found that precedence, and then they called it takia. Takia means covering. It's like uh, if you speak Arabic, takia. It's like a hat, hmm. right? So it's like still in our vocabulary that way. So when we first talk to some Muslims, they're going to be like, Takiya, what, like a hat? And I'm like, no, 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 there's this thing. Anyways, so when, when they wrote about this and they were, they were allowing Muslims to hide who they were on the inside in order to not die, that doesn't seem like unjust for me. We're not allowing Muslims to just run out and lie about anything they want. It seems like there's a specific purpose and that it makes sense. Like it's self-defense. I mean, it's practiced in pretty much every culture. Mm-hmm. You can't expect a U.S. general to go out there with a gun to his head and say, give me the location of all of the Navy vessels or we're going to blow your head off, that he has to tell the truth. And that if he doesn't tell the truth, he's going to go to hell for it. Like, that doesn't make any sense. No. So that's where that idea came from. I didn't know this when I first heard it. Exactly. Like, I have heard of this concept from Mm non-Muslims. Growing up, I didn't know this concept existed, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I am practicing Muslim. So to your point, it's absolutely right. Many Muslims don't even know about this this idea. Yeah, or or the way that it works, right? Uh, Or the way that it works. Um, So in Albania, when the Holocaust was happening and Mm -hmm. Muslims were hiding Jewish people under their floorboards or under their basements, and when... Nazi soldiers came and said, hey, do you have any Jews here? And they said, no, that's Tokaya, right? Yeah. They're, they're trying to preserve life. They're trying to save life. And so that's a beautiful thing, I think, about our religion is that there's so much nuance and that if something, you know, it's, it's meant to save and it's meant to guide. It's not meant to deceive and it's a, and you've said this uh, in your articles and stuff. It's a, your personal relationship with God. We don't mm-hmm. have clergy. We we have this direct relationship with God. We have guiding yeah. principles. But then, your relationship with God and the way you practice Islam is probably different from the way I do. Yeah. And and I'm not saying that we don't have those guiding principles, but still within that paradigm, we can 
have whatever kind of relationship we want with God. Look, my, my relationship with God changes every year. Absolutely. And I think that's a beautiful thing. So every year I try and read the Quran for Ramadan. I never get through it though. I always get like distracted. I'm really good the first week. Yeah, so every time I, I start and I'm reading the same verses that I read the last year, that I, I get new meaning from them. I like I discover new ideas about myself and my life through the same verses. So how could you expect two people who have existed centuries apart to read the same verses and get the same thing? Yeah. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. So I think part of the beauty of Islam that I've discovered later on in my life is that affected it's so malleable and that's that's beautiful that's like a thing to cherish and to hold on to and I wish that I appreciated that younger in life I want to talk a little bit about your podcast so sure. you've you ventured into that mm-hmm. how are you liking podcasting and again you're tackling issues like sex and relationships mm-hmm. which probably are not expected of you probably as a, as a Muslim man. Is, yeah. is that something that people ask you often? Yeah, yeah my mom is really upset. Oh, she um, is? No, I think that's why I needed to talk about it, honestly. Just like I did with the video series, I'm really interested in figuring out where these ideas came from in the first place and why people are so held on to these ideas. And so in that way, I think masculinity and religion are identical. Hmm. To me, it's totally the same thing. So... When I want to react a certain way to someone challenging my masculinity, right, or someone getting in my face and and wanting to start trouble or getting into my wife's face and wanting to start trouble with her, I have like a very visceral, instinctual reaction. It's something that I was always curious about. Like, why do I have that instinct and other kids don't? Why do I feel like... Even if I'm threatened verbally, it's okay to react violently. Mm. Where did that idea come from? And it's one of those things that I had to unlearn, like even in high school when I started getting in trouble for it. I was like, oh, I I can't do this anymore. But a little bit of that instinct still exists, even though I don't fight at all anymore. I would never put my hands on someone, but still I'm thinking in the back of my mind, if I needed to, Mm. what could I do to get myself out of XYZ situation, right? So I'm, I'm curious, okay, why, why does that exist in me? And it's so similar to the same thing with the Christmas tree. I know I shouldn't get a Christmas tree. I know that all of these things about my life are going to change if I don't get a Christmas tree or if I get a Christmas mm-hmm. tree. Let me, let me try. Let me, let me talk to people about why they have these ideas too and see if I can learn something about myself along the way. It's sort of like group therapy, right, for Muslims was the the first series. And with this series, I'm trying to do the same thing for masculinity. And it's something that comes up a lot. And especially, you know, I, I also talked about masculinity in the video series as well. I don't know if you remember, but there was an episode about sexual harassment in holy places, right, mm-hmm. specifically outside the Kaaba. We were talking in that episode about the way men were reacting mm-hmm. to these like this this information coming out right and so i think there's just so many parallels to me it's sort of an extension of the same series how has that changed your ideas of masculinity and how have you internalized Mm -hmm. those like things that you've discovered in the process yeah yeah so the last episode that came out last wednesday my life was changed forever and and i'm not just saying that it was really weird i did yoga for the first time Right. I grew up in an inner city where it just felt like if you were going to be doing stretching in that kind of way, it was feminine. Or at that time, when I was a kid and stupid, I would be like, that's gay. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you didn't want to like stretch and put your butt out in the air like that. So (laughs) like in, in order to first try yoga, I needed to get over that mental block. But then I thought I was done. So I'd I'd signed up and I was going to meet with the person I was going to do the interview with. And we're sitting and I'm on my way and I'm looking at my phone waiting. I'm like, yo, please cancel. Please can't. I don't want to go. But I go. And I thought I was good. I made it inside the door. That's the hardest part, right? No, it was also physically bending my body in ways that 
uh, I've never done before that I thought were, I, I felt like my mind had already surpassed that boundary, but now my body needed to do the same. And until my body physically stretched my, my, my calves away from each other and, and pulled my ankles closer and rocked back and forth and all of these different motions that I've never done before, until my body actually went through that, my body was still going to be convinced that those were feminine movements mm -hmm. and that I shouldn't ha have nothing to do with that. So I, I found myself questioning why I thought those things were feminine. Okay, I don't think I could be turned gay if I, like, move my body that mm -hmm. way. So why am I stopping myself from it? Mm -hmm. I don't think that my wife will see me as less of a man. Yeah. Actually, she sees me as more of a man. So, But why is my body still reluctant to cradle itself? All, all these kinds of questions were happening, and I found um, very similar to the way that we think about religion, right? The way that we think, okay, well, there's one way to be Muslim. In this case, there's one way to be a man. In any way around it, you're sort of straying from that path, and that's dangerous, right? We don't want to stray from the path. So I learned a lot. I learned that these boundaries that you cross mentally, it doesn't mean that you still don't have to cross the same boundaries physically. And I think this idea of masculinity, it's the way it's perceived in the U.S. It's very rigid, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just like like within like Muslim community or whatever. It's I think it's the outside environment as well. And we've seen how people have reacted to ads like the Gillette ad, where yeah. it is questioning that idea. So it's 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 becoming more nuanced now, which is a great thing. Mm -hmm. So even before we wrap up our interview, I always ask my guests this question. Cool. If you were to describe America in one word, one sentence. One word? Or maybe one sentence. Okay, okay that's like I've just expanded <laughs> the definition of how you can define it. Well, how would you define it? So, I mean, I'm feeling a lot of things right now. I'm feeling apathy for the gentrification that I'm currently experiencing mm. in New Jersey, but I'm also f experiencing joy and success like because the, the melting pot is just so beautiful it's it's basically a melting pot global village with a cowboy hat on it's like you're 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 supposed to be anything you want you can be anything you want there's a dominant culture that thinks it's cool but we all kind of think it's silly like a cowboy hat it's like yeah. it kind of looks silly but you think you're 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 tough wearing it so that's cool but yeah i'm gonna go with melting pot wearing a cowboy hat Okay, before we end our interview, where can people find your podcast? It's Man Up, right? It's called Man yeah, Up. It, you have to search Man Up Slate on mm -hmm. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or pretty much anywhere where you, you can listen to podcasts. And your video series. The video series you can find on YouTube. Uh, it's called Who's Afraid of Amen Ismail. You can just type in uh, Amen Muslim and it'll pop up probably. Thank you so much, Eamon. This was great. You're doing wonderful work. Thank um, you. Keep doing what you're doing. This is such a fun interview. I thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. And thank you so much for um, listening to my podcast. Give us feedback. We have a GoFundMe, so you yes. can contribute to that. Rated five stars. <laughs> Until next time, when we bring you another inspiring story. In the meantime, stay connected.